Hello, everyone. Uh, today, I'm very happy and uh, honored to have a conversation with a person I had the privilege to meet uh, twice, uh, Minister Audrey Tang, who has been at the forefront of the Taiwanese society involution in the recent years, and someone who in 2020 has been leading the efficient response against the pandemic in Taiwan. Uh, Audrey is a civic hacker who played a key role in the sunflower movement of 2013 and who is now Taiwan's digital minister in charge of social innovation. Uh, she has met the 2019 list of 100 global thinkers published by foreign policy magazines. And interestingly enough, she also defines herself as a conservative anarchist. But more on that later. She has managed to take the best of different worlds that has sometimes seen as incompatible public and private sector, tech and grassroots communities, business and government. And we will try to learn how she managed this and how in the Pacific we can take example to lead the changes to come in our communities. So Audrey, welcome and thank you for join, joining us today. Good local time, everyone. So uh, Audrey, you've been working, as I was saying, in uh, Silicon Valley. You've been an activist and you are now in an official public position, which is quite the hell of a, a resume. And so uh, for our audience here, who may not know you yet, uh, can you start by telling us a bit more about you and what has been your life path? Certainly. So um, when I dropped out of middle school, when I was 14 years old, I told my principal that there's this new thing called the World Web, and all my textbooks were out of date. And to my surprise, uh, the principal, the head of the school, and my teachers uh, all said, okay, go do whatever. You don't have to go to our school anymore. Uh, and so it has been uh, my feeling that a career public service is the most innovative people in the world. It's a very strange case of optimism. Uh, and online, I learned from the internet community, in particular, the Internet Engineering Task Force, the World Web Consortium, the Pearl community, and so on, on this crazy idea, really, of rough consensus and running code, radical transparency and civic participation uh, that still forms the political core of the internet today. And today I'm Taiwan's digital minister. I'm applying the lessons that I have learned when I was 15 years old uh, to make sure that there is people, public, private partnerships that could overcome the pandemic, for example, with no lockdown and overcome the infodemic, for example, with no takedown. All right. Uh, can you just, uh, uh, to, to precise some elements, what, um, what difference do you make between people, public, private partnership, and mostly people and public? How different are those two words to you? The people, uh, which is uh, social sector. The social sector is formed by voluntary participation. It could take the form of a co-op or a social entrepreneurship project. It could take the form of a cooperativism on the platform like GitHub and so on. Uh, and it can also take the form of the local charities and NGOs. So basically, it's everyone's business with everyone's help. Whereas the public sector uh, or the government uh, in Taiwan, we're a liberal democracy most of the time. Um, for the health and education, we're a social democracy. Uh, but uh, they have uh, in the government the rules of due process, and the due process makes the regulations binding. And so the interface between the social sector and the public sector relies on the agenda-setting power, whether it is the social sector that sets the agenda, saying, hey, we really want to talk about banning plastic straws in our national drink, bubble tea? Uh, or do we really want to talk about 
for example, setting up our own fact-checking mechanisms so that the government would not censor um, any media, but we can still get uh, up-to-date report on the information manipulations. The social sector always sets the agenda. And once the social sector and the public sector, the very innovative career public service, reach uh, their own rough consensus, we can then take this consensus to the economic sector or the private sector uh, to form truly uh, cross partnerships. Okay. And so uh, on the reverse uh, order that you presented us this, so for you it made sense to start by the private sector for your career and to end up in the public sector? Uh, it's not quite that, uh, right? So I started my first startup when I was 16 years old. Uh, but uh, before that, I'm already well-versed uh, in, for example, the policy making uh, on the internet, uh, which is uh, the RFCs, uh, the request for comments. It is also a public sector work, except, of course, it's not for a sovereign country, but for the internet itself. And so I've been versed in that political process for quite some time uh, before I would start my first startup uh, working on search engines and uh, C2C um, auctions and things like that. But even before that, uh, I also devoted a lot of time to the social sector work. For example, uh, my mom is one of the founders of the foundation of the Homemakers Union, uh, who is um, basically they would later on to uh, make the largest consumer co-op uh, in the whole country, which is still alive and well uh, right now and a force of good. Uh, and so that's social sector. So uh, in my personal experience, my social sector activity began when I was eight or something. And then the public sector in the form of internet governance when I was 12 or 13 or something, and then the business sector when I was 16. Okay, well that was quite an early uh, call for you to uh, work for your country. Um, all right, so this conversation is all about leadership and, and innovation. So to get clear foundations on what we'll discuss after, uh, can you tell us what are your definitions for the term leadership and what is your definition for the term innovation? Sure. Uh, to me, leadership is to find common values out of different positions. And innovation is to deliver new ideas that acts upon those common values that leaves no one worse off or in a way that everyone benefits. Okay. So for you, would you say leadership is about consensus or compromise? So uh, it's about rough consensus. It's an internet governance um, jargon, really. Um, so consensus could be taken to mean that it's like a pact that everyone has to sign and wouldn't change one word. That's fine, consensus. Or it could be taken to mean everyone can live with this. This is called rough consensus. I mean rough consensus in the sense of people broadly saying, okay, we're, we're okay with the direction this is going, but that's it. We do not have to squander a lot of time over the fine details. We can then go off and do our own work. Okay, thank you. And knowing that, uh, as you said, leadership is about finding common values, but can we also say that innovation is sometimes about disrupting those values. So how do you combine the tools in order for a community to move forward efficiently in times of deep changes and disruptions such as those we're living right now? Well, innovations may sometimes disrupt the business as usual attitude 
uh, there's no denying that. But if innovation is delivered in such a way so that everyone who gets disrupted ended up better off, or at least didn't sacrifice anything, then it's called a Pareto improvement. It may be very disruptive and have a very high impact, but on the positive scale. And, and I didn't mean disruption as in have an externality on the negative scale. That's not disruptive, that's destructive. Oh, okay. So there's a clear distinction between the two concepts. Yes. Okay. Uh, so, as I said in the introduction uh, that I did of you, uh, you call yourself a conservative anarchist. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about it and how this vision is important for you in leading social innovation? Certainly. So, um, I usually describe myself as a Taoist uh, or a poetician. Uh, but this, in a, a Western context, sometimes summons a more... I don't know, spiritual um, meaning, which is not what I mean. Uh, and so I try to find equivalent words uh, in the Western political words and then settled on the term conservative anarchism. The conservative part simply means, like a Taoist, uh, we do not doing, meaning that our work is mostly about a transcultural rough consensus building so that instead of in Taiwan, we have more than 20 national languages. Each particular language or culture advancing for progress while destructing, destroying uh, the other, other 19 national languages and therefore cultures. That's called progressive, by the way. Uh, my work is conservative in the sense that it must deliver on the shared values of the 20 plus cultures. And the anarchist part means very simply, that I give no orders and take no orders. And so everything is by voluntary association. In a sense, my work is entirely nonviolent and always in a way that respects the social norm. Okay. Uh, well, why do you think that the term anarchist uh, can have such a bad reputation in, in many countries and how it could surprise people to see the word conservative linked to the word anarchist. Yeah, um, I would like to compare this with another term called uh, radical centrism. Uh, and it's a very similar uh, combination of two unlikely to be combined uh, words. Right? Radical means we're okay to rethink fundamentally um, different structures on top of which uh, we will build the society. But centrism means that uh, we act only in the direction that combines rather than divides the, the people, the society. So um, the two words, the adjective and the noun, kind of counterbalance one another. But to me, conservative anarchist uh, expands the scope even wider so that it, it includes the entire community of not just homo sapiens, not just UMA as human beings, but also rivers and trees and, I don't know, future generations uh, and other people. Uh, and this is a very inclusive way of thinking. Now, if you want to realize this vision in a way that um, has a deadline, then it tends to be very destructive. And so I think that's what gives the anarchist 
a bad reputation because they're perceived as certainly not conservative, but rather progressive and also violent. But uh, I put the term conservative meaning that I'm willing to act uh, throughout my life, multiple generations, or even um, working toward it, but understanding where I will not see some of the ideas realized in my lifetime. I'm okay with that. And in that sense, uh, the term anarchist become uh, symbolized as a very long-term thinking. Mm-hmm. So it's conservative more in terms of conserv- conservating everyone's interests more than just like refraining from change. Right. So uh, basically, it's about changing, but only in the direction that respects the traditions of the 20 or so cultures here. Okay, great. Uh, so that ties up to the next question quite well. Uh, so our audiences in the Pacific and in the Pacific communities are trying to find the right balance between maintaining traditions that are very important to them and the cultural foundations of the local societies while implementing democracy, which are principles of governance that are based mostly on the European model. Uh, Taiwan, which is a mix of different cultures and traditions, as you said, uh, includes some close ties with the Pacific cultures as well, because you're part of the Austronesian ensemble. Uh, And you seem to have found that good balance between those two constraints, uh, the local tradition, the local cultures, and also the global influence or the West, what we would call Western influence. Uh, so can you tell us more about it and how you, your work is key in maintaining this, this balance between all those elements? Yeah, the eastern side of Taiwan, which is much more indigenous and, as you mentioned, uh, like Austronesian, um, we made sure that the core ideas of um, solidarity, sustainability, and so on uh, are interpreted and defined on the local terms, certainly not by European terms. And that led to what I refer to, the social democratic core. Uh, of our government and society. Basically, when it pertains to health, for example, everyone in Taiwan, not just citizens, but also residents who work here, uh, all have the single-payer national health card that makes sure that it's actually cheaper to uh, go to the nearby pharmacy to get a pair of masks, put it on, and go to a local clinic and get a full diagnosis, and it's still cheaper than any of the drive-through tests for COVID. And you can't say that in pretty much anywhere in the world. Um, And so the other, for example, is um, broadband access. We made sure that anywhere in Taiwan, even on the mountainous areas of the eastern side, you're guaranteed to have 10 megabits per second. um, And for just... 16 US dollars per month, even on the top of Taiwan, the Yushan Mountain. And again, uh, this is a very social democratic core, making sure that everybody have the same um, access to the democratic debates and deliberations. And if you don't have a good reception of signals, that's my fault, like personally, uh, you can take me to account. And so uh, these examples show that if we take into account the solidarity and sustainability found foundations of the, our Austronesian lineage, we can actually make a better society by making sure that people enjoy the same access to those basic fundamental things. Of course, um, if you want to paint your uh, mask in rainbow color or in, um, I think, it shines at night or things like that, then we're on the liberal democratic um, you know, market.
market force, capitalist core uh, of the society. But both um, act in the same time. You can go to the uh, pharmacy for a very inexpensive rationing of masks of 10 masks per two weeks, or you can pay uh, for those uh, masks that shine at night. Mm -hmm. So would you say that the best way to implement those two uh, currents of influence, I would say, would be to have people who understand both of the worlds and are key decision makers in that regard in order to make sure that every uh, elements of the question have been seen from the different perspectives, the cultural perspectives? Uh, well, in our uh, constitution, uh, the 10th article, I think, of the constitution uh, addendums, it uh, specifies very clearly, uh, in addition to the universal health care, but also um, access to science access to education, access to culture. These are the socialist core. And the rest could be market-driven, but these are the socialist core. So it's spelled out in the constitution. Okay. And so they, they pause the role of the government on the major issues that are relevant to other people. Okay. Um, so how do you think, uh, how relevant do you think is social innovations in, in the times we're currently living in? And would you say that any community should invest more in such processes, whether big or small communities? Um, definitely. Because if a situation is new, for example, in the case of pandemic, nobody has the perfect solution. And if you involve everybody's help, then, because it's everyone's business, right? Uh, then you tend to come up with better ideas. For example, we say here, wear a mask to protect your own face from your own unwashed hand. Now, this one-liner is a social innovation because it links mask use to hand sanitation because it appeals to rational self-interest rather than respecting um, the elderly or respecting your neighbors. Uh, and so this idea is very much worth spreading. And so it spreads faster. And that's social innovation. Social innovation is about recombining existing materials such as mask and soap and then uh, make sure that the idea was spreading, recombine them in a way that are more pro-social, that have a positive externality. So this is a very simple, small example, but it's worth highlighting. Mm -hmm. And so just to clarify for the people who would watch us that social innovation is not about implementing tech or new tools in the social uh, living, but just like finding new ways to reinvent the society in which we live in. Uh, well, not necessarily reinvent. Uh, innovation is really just a new idea that's worth spreading, right? So to do things a little bit differently, that's how I would put it. Okay, so it doesn't have to be revolutionary, just be like a new angle, a new approach. on. on right, right. It could be as simple as protecting your own face against your own unwashed hands. Mm -hmm. Now, um, it didn't start that way, right? It started as in, wear a mask to protect your own face. And then it mutates. It, uh, the variation became uh, wearing a mask to protect uh, your face against your own hands. And then another innovator added something new to it against your own unwashed hand. So that's three mutations right there. And each one increased the basic transmission rate of the social innovation idea. Okay, okay, I see. Um so you, you told us a little bit that, uh, when you were talking about your career about the concept of radical transparency. Mm -hmm. uh, can you tell us a little bit about more because I don't think that's quite uh, known here in the Pacific and how is it important to ensure an efficient digital democracy? 
Mm-hmm. Certainly. So every conversation that I chair or interview with journalists or indeed this very video um, is being recorded. Uh, and radical to me means at the root. So they are transparent by default. Now, of course, if you don't feel like publishing some part of your words, then it's okay, right? You can stay pseudonymous, you can take out part of what you said to me or whatever before we publish, but that takes effort. So to open is the default and to remove some part of it because maybe you told about your friend's story, but your friend did not clear it for public understanding or public recognition. Uh, And so this is an in-joke or something and you would want to take it out after the fact. Usually we provide 10 days uh, to go through the recording and co-edit it before we publish. And the benefit of this is that first, nobody will be quoted out of context, but more importantly, people who were not in the conversation can see that the angle of each stakeholders and how they may contribute and how everyone actually is pro-social and advocating for global good. Uh, And that's because if you understand everyone, uh, including future generations, will see your transcript or your video, people tend to only talk about things that are for the global good. Mm -hmm. So so the basis of a full accountability system, basically. That is exactly correct. Mm. And do you think in uh, societies that can have a long tradition of very vertical or hierarchical uh, exercise of power, this concept can uh, root in um, easily or efficiently? Well, I think uh, even on the top level of, for example, um, constitutional debate, um, nowadays we're seeing more and more constitutional courts publishing not only their decisions, uh, but the individual ideas of the justices, uh, or at least the summary of the various points that they have gone through. Of course, on the lower level courts, uh, it is already a given that they will publish um, their verdict, basically, uh, and free of copyright. And the lawyers uh, who present arguments in a public fashion, they can't um, get, I don't know, patent royalty or license fee from copyright from the work that they contribute to the judiciary system. So already the judiciary branch builds its accountability on top of radical transparency. And what I'm advocating is really only that the administration can learn some of it, but the judicial system is also very hierarchical. Mm. And what would you say to a leader uh, that is right now in power, whether in the administration or the government, who would tell you that sharing, like being so open about sharing information with the citizens would impact or diminish their power or would uh, impact the way that the power is exercised in the societies? Mm -hmm. Well, I think if you exercise radical transparency, people feel closer to you. And it is indeed true. If you make sure that people uh, receive a daily update every 2 p.m., in Taiwan's case, for more than 100 days from the uh, quint, the five people um, of the Central Epidemic Command Center, I mean, they carry a lot of authority uh, with them, but they're also very willing to explain in a radically transparent way uh, each and every question from the journalist and also from the hotline, 1922. Uh, So when a boy calls 
report saying um, the school is rationing our mask, and all I get are pink ones. All my boyfriends have blue ones. I don't want to wear pink、uh, to the class.、Uh, the very next day, everyone in the CCC, including the Minister Chen Shizhong, wore pink medical mask in an act of solidarity, and、um, suddenly the boy became the most hip boy. In the class,、um, and so this is really about listening, a skill、uh, to people, and acting in a way with the people、uh, through solidarity. And imagine how the how the young boy felt initially in a very depressive mood, and the very next day in a very uplifting mood. And that mood, I would argue, actually increased the communication power of Minister Chen Shizhong,、uh, even though he is, of course, a man and wears pink medical mask. It doesn't diminish his power. Okay, interesting. And、uh, so, right here in French Polynesia, we had this issue of、uh, issue of lack of communication from the government.、Uh, But a lot of people are saying information is now available everywhere. So what's the point of the government telling us that they have the right information?、Uh, so do you think that radical transparency is more about explaining how you work more than saying I have the right information? And how how would you balance those、uh, elements? Radical transparency is about sharing the how and the why of policy making. As you mentioned, the what and the who. Everybody knows about it already, anyway, right?、Uh, but the, the how and why—that's not always clear, because in Taiwan, what we want to make sure is that everyone who complain about a policy can have the right evidence and information to participate in policy making. But if they do not know the how or why of the policy in the first place, then it's very unlikely that their criticism will be constructive. Because they know, don't know on which foundation they would construct the criticism,、um, and so I would argue, for example, when we say we're rationing out masks, not because we we believe in rationing, but because there are people stockpiling masks, and we know if there's no three quarters of people wearing the mask and washing their hands, the R value, the virus. Will be、um, above one, meaning that it will go viral. But if we can get three quarter of people access to mask, then that would not happen, and that's the why.、Mm. Okay, I see. Great, thank you. So, in countries that are far from the main economic and tele- technological centers, such as the Pacific Islands, for example,、uh, how do you think it's important to implement those principles of radical transparency, digital democracy, social innovations? Because when you think about Taiwan, you think about this very highly advanced technologically and economically advanced country, and you, you may, if you're from a different place in the world, think like, "Oh, but that doesn't work for us, or we don't need that." Uh, what would you say to those people, and how do you think? How relevant do you think it is for our communities here in the Pacific? Well, we didn't build these、um, social innovation platforms out of expensive technology.、Uh, it's not like we require VR or something, right?、Um, I mentioned the toll-free number one nine two two, which could be、um, called from a landline.、Um, I mentioned the daily two p.m. press conference. 
which could be delivered through radio and or television. Uh, and I mentioned, of course, the idea of a poster that says, wear a mask to protect yourself against your own unwashed hands. Uh, and people can amend the poster by putting unwashed <laughs> on that poster. And again, that just requires some, um, I don't know, crayons or something. Uh, and, and so these are very affordable, appropriate technologies. And there's nothing that prevents a society from embracing those. Uh. Okay, that's interesting because another element of uh, the discussion around technology and innovation, not only social innovation, but innovation uh, in the larger sense of the world, is that those uh, evolutions comes with the values of the person who is involved with take the technology right now. It's mostly influenced by American values and the, the conversation right now is what's going to happen when China will take the lead and come with an innovation that is built upon their own values. So how do you think that communities such as island communities like in the Pacific can play their game to avoid being too influenced by external uh, innovation or external technology and how sometimes maybe going back to smaller elements of those innovations can be helpful in that? Yeah, I think um, appropriate technology could be appropriated uh, to make um, your own combinations. And so, for example, in Taiwan, we have this very inexpensive um, equipment, home appliance, actually, called a traditional rice cooker. Uh, and it's a simple rice cooker that doesn't even have a steam vent. And so it's very sturdy. It's impossible to break, essentially. And people use it to cook rice. And there was a social innovator that discovered, because it doesn't have a steam vent, if you don't add water to it, if you keep it dry, you can put your used mask there, even medical grade mask, and then uh, heat it up for a few minutes where it will heat to 110 Celsius, killing the virus, and then very quickly cool down, therefore not destroying the fabric. Now, I'm sure that the manufacturer of the rice cooker didn't anticipate this use of sterilizing masks, but they have no say in it because this is appropriate technology. Uh, the social innovator uses existing elements of already widely deployed technology towards something that is pro-social, that is good for everyone's health. Now, the government's role then is to listen to the social sector and then replicate the experiment, uh, maybe publish some scientific papers. And our uh, Taiwan Food and Drug Administration eventually then said, yeah, it's actually safe. If you, instead of put musk on the bottom of the rice cooker, uh, you put on uh, some bowl or something uh, to make sure that it doesn't uh, stick uh, to the bottom of the rice cooker. They added this very important clarification. And then Minister Chen Shizhong, um, after he put on the pink musk, uh, actually cooked the musk in front of the entire country. Uh, and so I use this uh, to illustrate that while each technology may have its original values and original um, ideologies, if you will, if you insist on the right to uh, appropriate those technologies, then you can reappropriate those technologies as appropriate. And the role of the government is to find out those uh, ideas and innovation mm -hmm. and value them in order for the society to reown technologies, basically. That's exactly right, yes. Okay, great, interesting. 
so we talked a lot about the pandemic, and obviously Taiwan has been an example on that. Uh, but there are a lot of issues right now that are pressing at the global scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, about minorities' rights, uh, climate change, obviously mm-hmm. uh, acts a lot the Pacific, uh, global inequality, mm-hmm. uh, all of that are encountering uh, a lot of resistance lately. Uh, and even more so, some movements have been created to call back on the progress made on those issues. Uh, why do you think there has been such, and in your view, has there been a failure of leadership that led to those strong resistance against those big issues? Well, um, the way I define leadership, which is shared values out of different positions, uh, there's no failure in that mode, right? Because basically, if you focus only on the shared values, if you only ask questions like, what would be the case if it works for everybody? Can you imagine such a case? And so on. If you act on leadership with these function-raising questions, um, and then there could be no failure, because each failure uh, is just another way that didn't work. For example, if you add water to the rice cooker, it doesn't work to, to kill the virus, and uh, the mask will be destroyed. Uh, but it's okay. We, we learn something about that. right? We learn something about science. This is how science progresses. And I must emphasize that not only natural science is science, social science is also science. Social technologies, such as democracy, are also technologies. And just as we can change the different semiconductor layout designs, we can also change how the government listens to the people, not necessarily just um, every four years casting a vote, which is roughly three bits of information per person. Everyone can call 1922, which is easily like 30 megabits of information per call. Uh, And so this will massively increase the bandwidth of communication. And when you deploy the leadership uh, mechanisms in this way, then the structural issues could be discovered and innovations found rather than a breakdown of communication into silos. So what you're saying is that basically those uh, issues that we're facing right now that are unheard of uh, for most of them uh, really require for us to kind of reverse engineer democracy and Mm -hmm. find new ways to adapt it to those challenges and not just try to replicate the old tools to make them fit to a reality that is not such anymore. Yeah, traditional, especially parliamentarian uh, democracy is mostly about how to develop the budget and how to develop the the bills, right, the the acts, uh, the law, and how to deliver them in the form of administration. So that's um, in addition to the parliamentarian. Of course, there's also the career public service. Um, and develop and delivery, these are the two main aspects of traditional democracy and also what we call the second diamond in the double diamond design thinking. So if you think about design thinking, uh, it adds reverse engineers, if you will, uh, a additional diamond earlier in time. Before you develop or deliver any public proposal, you must first discover what a stakeholder feels. They may not be able to articulate solutions, but everyone is able to share their feelings. And when the feelings resonate, then you define 
the common values, the common goals. So adding to the traditional representative democracy a sense of deliberative democracy that can expand the horizon on discovery and mutual definition, I think this will also augment and help the quality of the later development and the delivery of public service. And what would you say to people who would tell you that according to the impact of those big changes, and especially climate change, that is no longer time to go and ask people how they feel, what they want before uh, implementing action, and that would require us sometimes here uh, the example of more authoritarian regimes, uh, and we hear a lot about people saying, oh, look, uh, China has uh, managed the pandemic efficiently. We should go towards those kind of governments and, and all that. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, on a per capita basis, not only Taiwan managed the pandemic more successfully, but we're also reporting a GDP growth this year of, I think, 2.5% or something. Uh, and so, of course, I'm not saying the top-down lockdowns are not useful. They are obviously useful, but it sacrifices a little bit of economic growth, and it sacrifices a lot of social capability, the social sector. Uh, it made the society even more authoritarian than it was ever before, right? So because of that, it is a clearly a solution. I'm just saying um, it has negative externalities, very large for the society, and maybe also a little bit for the government. But in Taiwan, when we counter the pandemic using um, basically humor over rumor and many other innovative methods, not only the economic is growing a lot, but also people's trust to each other growed a lot. Uh, and so I'm saying that it's, of course, your jurisdiction's choice whether to go with the authoritarian and almost totalitarian ways of doing things, or if you choose to go from a liberal democratic um, country's uh, innovation method that has a core of social democracy in it. Mm. That goes back to your definition of leadership, where the shared values, are we willing to sacrifice those values of liberty, solidarity, equality during a crisis with the long-term consequences that we can think of? Or are we sticking to those values and then trying to design thinking our democracy mm -hmm. in a way that will bring solutions? Right, that are right. right. And, and also, I mean, the daily press conferences, the 1922 hotline and so on, these are very fast. Right? So they are also efficient. They're as efficient as the authoritarian counterpart, and I would argue more effective. Yeah, all right. Uh, but the, the question that comes with it, and you, you uh, touched upon that, is, is the trust in the institutions. And someone could say that in Taiwan, there's obviously a big trust in the institutions uh, for many reasons, historical, political, social. Uh, right here in, the, in French Polynesia, what we've experienced during the pandemic is a high level of distrust against the institution, and that has been expressed mostly through social medias by the spread of disinformation, fake news, uh, conspiracy theories, and all that, and that has impacted the social construct of our society and, and the link we have with our governments. Uh, can you tell us a little bit on how Taiwan works on that humor versus rumor uh, uh, principle? And, and more generally, how do you fight disinformation and conspiracy that is today in most societies a very big uh, deal? Sure. Um, just six years ago in 2014, the Taiwanese trust 
uh, in the administration and institutions was about 9%. Uh, and so I'm not quite sure whether you will call it high or not. Uh, it's actually uh, the lowest point uh, for a presidency. Um, and uh, that is because, of course, the Sunflower Movement, people who occupy the parliament uh, protesting initially, but very quickly after they found out that the police are not going to evict them, it turned into a very nonviolent demonstration. Um, so demonstration in a sense of a demo, meaning that showing how the people can, with half a million people on the street and many more online, listen to one another. And making sure that humor spreads faster than rumor has been key in the Sunflower Movement, as well as every large social movement afterwards. And in Taiwan, we made sure that whenever there is a trending misinformation, making sure that all the competent authorities, we make sure that they can see this in real time by people essentially reporting spam. So in your email uh, reader, there is a button that says report spam. If you click that, it goes to your junk mail folder and also shares the kind of um, footprint of that email, warning everyone that this is a scam or this is spam email. And when sufficient amount of people do that, then international communities such as Spam House have a very clear view which spammers are now being active because the people who receive those spams will flag them as spam and contribute. So we built a very similar system from the social sector, not the government, because otherwise the government will gain censorship power. So the social sector then um, collaborated together and created co-facts, which enabled people to flag those uh, conspiracy theories as soon as they appear on closed channels, like end-to-end -end encrypted channels, like WhatsApp or Line. And then the Taiwan Fact Check Center, which is part of the international fact-checking network, um, will then uh, just fact-check on the ones that are the most trending, because people's um, mental capacity for any given time is limited. So at any given time, there's only maybe two or three trending conspiracy theories. And so the uh, IFCM members in Taiwan, Michael Penn and TFCC, uh, the Fact Check Center, will fact check those. Again, they are in the social sector and not funded by the government. But the government's role is, as soon as we see a fact check, we make sure that we work with professional comedians to make it very funny. And so that people will share it much more joyfully and willingly uh, than the original conspiracy theories. If you can complete this whole process within two hours, then it makes sure that this humor reaches far more people than the rumor. And uh, I think in the beginning, you can try to attempt it within the same day. So at least before going to sleep, your citizens can see the humor. Uh, in addition to the rumor. And because humor is so much fun, when they wake up, they remember the humor part of it. So there's a, a necessity for the government to be very reactive and find new ways beyond the usual institutional communication channel. But also, I, I, from what I hear from you, is that there's also a citizen responsibility to take part in the communal uh, space and saying, I have a duty to make sure that we share good information, we share good 
facts and, and that no one is harmed on the way. So it's it's really horizontal and everyone has a role to play in that and we should not expect everything from the government. Definitely. This is why we put in our basic education curriculum, starting from the first year of primary school, the idea of not just media literacy, which is about uh, consuming media, but media competence, which is about remixing and sharing media. And the idea of digital competence or media competence, everyone is a producer and therefore has a responsibility. This is very important. Yeah, so it goes back to the very ground level of everyone and, and the education system. In mm -hmm. uh, I'd like to uh, quote a book now, if you don't mind, uh, a book that I recently read. It's called Survival of the Friendliest, and it's mm -hmm. uh, written by researchers Brian Haw and Vanessa mm -hmm. Woods. Uh, mm -hmm. And in the book, they recall a quote by Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, uh, who says that technology alone isn't the solution, and sometimes it's even part of the problem. And it goes on to say technology is and always has been a double-edged sword. The projectile weapons that used to cooperatively hunt mammoths could also be used to kill our fellow humans. Self-driving cars will save 100,000 lives a year until terrorists hijack the network and will kill 100,000 people in a series of crashes. In order for technology to be used as a force for good, it needs to be developed in anticipation of the best and worst of human nature. But it almost never is. Our social problems require social solutions. Do you agree with this quote? I do not. I think uh, there is no evil use of traditional rice cookers. <laughs> Maybe just a rice cooker then? Or... <laughs> but uh, I mean, this is, um, this is the fundamental difference between the industrial innovation kind of thinking and the social innovation kind of thinking. In the industrial innovation kind of thinking is private-public people partnership. It starts from the private sector. Try to reduce the harm. Negotiate with the government. And then the people are users uh, of those technologies, and which may or may not be harmful. Um, there's another industry that calls its consumer users. Uh, so um, anyway, uh, and so the other part uh, of the innovation, social innovation, uh, flips this around. It always starts with appropriate technology. It always starts with a social idea uh, that, hey, this sounds a really good idea for the entire community. And then they don't even invent new technologies. They use whatever um, is available to them. And then the government amplifies this way of thinking, making sure that everyone has access to the safety precautions uh, of how to wear a mask properly without destroying that mask. Like if you wear it like this, uh, it's not very useful, like not uh, actually very not useful. Uh, and so there's a job for the government uh, to say, please wear it like this. Otherwise, you may as well not wear it. Um, and then, uh, of course, there's the economic sector's job uh, in conformance to the social norms uh, to make more of those masks and also to make it more shiny so they can also sell it uh, for a surplus. Uh, I'm not blaming the economic sector uh, for anything really. They, they are there for a reason. But what I'm saying is that they are manufacturing something that is already pre-agreed by the social sector and then later on the public sector. And technologies manufactured this way tend to go nowhere but up. Mm. So in your model, uh, businesses and the private sector in general are just enablers and they are not the one who decide what people need and how they mm -hmm. should use it. So 
So mm-hmm. the people decide what they want. The businesses, the private sector enables this request. And the government makes sure that any use of those requests will be harmless, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's a very succinct way of putting Okay. Okay. Great. That's uh, an interesting, uh, and that goes against a, a lot of what we see uh, today, where we uh, kind of put the private sector as the key solution to everything, including public issues. Uh, and when we've seen, and including here in French Polynesia, a movement that came to build uh, floating islands based on the libertarian principle, where they were saying private sector will solve everything. We don't need the government anymore. So, mm-hmm. on, on based on your model, mm-hmm. this is this makes no sense. Well, if it's a floating island, then almost by definition, there was no uh, previous tradition, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the whole point of uh, conserving uh, in a transcultural way uh, existing traditions is that there was such a tradition in the first place, right? So what I describe may or may not apply uh, to the, the makers uh, of those seasteaders, uh, right? But I wish them um, luck and, and I don't have anything against it. I'm just pointing out, even though Taiwan is also a, a new island, uh, the new uh, is millions years old already, right? So it's new on geological terms, but not on human lifespan terms. And there are existing ecosystem and cultures that we need to sustain. Yeah, and like you start from scratch, it's uh, very difficult to go based on a model that would be harmless without taking into consideration what the population mm-hmm. wants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe, but maybe we can try it on Mars. I'm not uh, yeah. against that. <laughs> That's another adventure. Okay, uh, Audrey, just my last question for you. Uh, we've already used a lot of your time, and thank you for that. Uh, what would be your advice or recommendation to any person who would like to become an agent of change for his or her community or the globe in general, uh, but could feel helpless uh, right now in the midst of all we're living all together in the world? Mm-hmm. So um, I will first uh, quote from my favorite singer, songwriter, Lena Cohen, uh, who said, Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack, a crack in everything. And that is how the light gets in. Sometimes people feel helpless because they're a little bit perfectionist. If you're there to make mistakes uh, and share those mistakes made, of the rice cooker usage that destroyed the mask, for example, uh, then people will build upon those so-called failures. And before long, you will be a social innovator. And this is the key, really. A social innovator only works in a social setting. And so share your helplessness through, I don't know, outrage, uh, and then into collective worrying, and then on top of that, before long, joy will appear and thrive. Okay, that's a great note of hope to end this interview. Audrey, thank you very much for taking the time to uh, talk to us and, and sharing your wisdom from mm-hmm. Taiwan uh, to the Pacific. Uh, good luck for the coming year. It's not mm-hmm. the new Chinese year yet, but it's going to be mm-hmm. the uh, 2021 mm-hmm. for everyone else. Uh, so good luck for uh, the coming times and, uh, and all the best to you and to Taiwan. Yeah, and uh, thank you for those great questions. Live long and prosper. Same to you. Goodbye. Bye.